0: Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. Um, if you have a Bible, just um, open Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. The message is entitled, The Priesthood of the Believer. Um, I hope you realize that every believer is a king and a priest. Jesus has made us kings and priests unto God his father, literally a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1-6. And yet, despite this truth, there are many in the church that have allowed the separation division between clergy and laity, thinking that the pastor is the only one that can perform ministerial duties. John Wesley was confronted by the Anglican church when he began to ordain lay people who were called and anointed by God. Martin Luther withstood the Roman Catholic Church not only in justification by faith, but on the clear distinction between clergy and laity as a form of elitism by teaching that the priest had greater favor before God than the average believer. That's not true. Pastor Chuck Smith received great opposition when he opened up his heart to the hippies in the 60s in the early 70s, and ordained some of them as ministers. But yet God's the one that calls and gifts and ordains men and women, uh, those who will used by God within the body of Jesus Christ. Now this um, was one of the very sins of the church of Pergamos that God hates, the sins of the Nicolaitans found there in Revelation 2.15. The word is made up of two words. Neko, meaning to conquer, and laos, meaning the people or the laity. The word means to conquer over the laity in the sense of superior power or dominance in absolute authority. So in other words, they're the leaders and they have special things and the regular people are a bunch of peons. Okay? That's clearly the perspective there. Now, this is never to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we continue in our series on the nature of the church, we want to examine the priesthood of the believer from three perspectives. First, the priesthood of the believer is based on the, with their identity with Christ. That's the foundation. Secondly, the priesthood of the believer is for service. And thirdly, the priesthood of the believer is effective through the gifts of the Spirit. So let's begin with the priest of the believer is based on their identity with Christ. The believer in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2 is identified and his identity is through election. Election is always based on the foreknowledge of God. It says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Now, here in this text, foreknowledge is one of God's unique attributes, not communicable to man. In other words, man doesn't have it, only God does. He alone possesses knowledge beforehand by virtue of his omniscience. He knows everything. God cannot learn nothing, God's not surprised by anything. He knows everything that exists, that will happen, or it will even whether it's in the present or the future. Nothing escapes him. The words "elect" and "predestined" in the verse here, and "chosen" are all indicative of God's choice of the believer before the foundation of the world for service and blessing. John fifteen sixteen, Ephesians one. Six are very clear. Now, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. We are told in Romans 8, 29. This um, text simply teaches that God knew who would believe the gospel to be saved. Not that he predestined them to believe the gospel. Because if God predestined specific individuals, as Calvinism teaches, while rejecting the remainder that would make God a respecter of person because both groups deserve hell. Okay? So God just knows who will and who will not. Simple. If there is no transformation, that is the end of predestination. We are predestined to be conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. God sees it. It's no problem. As I said this morning, it's no problem with God. For us, it confuses us, but for God, it doesn't. All of these are in the perfect tense there in Romans 8.30. Yet some will ask, how can this be? Predestination never violates free will. They are not contradictions. Predestination and free will are complements. They're complementary truths. In other words, we are predestined and we have a decision to make. We get to respond. God always initiates and we respond. Election is worked out through the sanctification notice here in this verse of the Spirit for obedience and trust in the atoning blood of Christ for salvation. The Holy Spirit sets people apart for the purpose of enabling them to obey. Before we're born again, we can't obey the Word of God. God doesn't hold the world responsible for His Word. He holds him responsible for rejecting his word, but he doesn't hold a non-believer responsible to obey his word. He's spiritually dead. He can't do it. Whether he hasn't had an opportunity to be saved yet or whether he has rejected, he has no ability. Only the person that is born again can obey the word of God. Now, before everybody dies, they have to have at least one chance to be saved. Otherwise, God couldn't judge them and he couldn't be good and he couldn't be just. Everybody has to be judged. I can't tell you when, where, or how, but it doesn't matter, right? God is just, so he has to give an opportunity. Now, so he never violates free will. So um, I don't want to get sidetracked. If you've never done a study on Calvinism, we have a whole series on it. I would encourage you to get it. Download it in the, in the uh, website and go through it completely. Uh, the Tulip of Calvinism. It's very uh, eye-opening. Now the Holy Spirit illuminates the all-sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ for the work of salvation, imparting faith to the believer. The Holy Spirit would be another comforter," Jesus said in John 14:16 16 and 16:13 16, through14, um, just like Jesus, of the same kind, guiding man into all truth and speaking in the authority of Jesus, but never glorifying himself. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. One just like Jesus, but a separate person. But never speaks of himself or glorifies himself, but only brings to mind the words of Jesus and glorifies Jesus. Simple. So we're never really to pray to the Holy Spirit. I know many Christians do. You're not supposed to. You're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the silent witness of Jesus Christ. Okay? They each have their place. Now the Holy Spirit... Convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus said in John sixteen eight. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we might not be as orphans in John fourteen eighteen, but that we might be taught and guided and comforted by Jesus Christ. No person can be persuaded by mere words that they are a sinner apart from the power of the holy spirit's illumination for conviction yet god calls us to intellectually interact with the world so it doesn't mean that we don't use our mind and paul picks this up in 1 corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 through 5 so we use human words to communicate the gospel but we're not depending on our intellect alone to believe and understand the gospel we can only understand certain things but the conviction of the spirit of god to realize that I'm lost in need of salvation comes by the work of the Spirit of God, but I get to decide whether I want to believe the truth about myself, that I'm a sinner lost in need of salvation, or whether I reject that. And God honors my choice. If you were forced to marry somebody without a choice, would that be fair? No. No. If God misrepresented himself, he says, you know, I really uh, want the best for you. And then you say, okay, I'll save you. And then he judges you. He'd be deceiving you, right? He would be keeping back something about himself, right? But he doesn't. He tells you exactly who he is. He's one who died for you, and he can forgive you, and he can make you saved. And then you get to choose one way or the other. Now, the believer's identity is through coming to Jesus Christ then. In First Peter chapter 2. Verse 4 through 10. Peter tells us there that no one can bring you to God. Um, um, Only the work of the Spirit of God we've been talking about. But he gives an incredible description there. And so uh, he is the only way. Mary cannot bring you to to God. Works cannot bring you to God. Uh, Allah cannot bring you to God. Uh, no virgin, no uh, mediators, no saints. Okay, only Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy two five. Okay, no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. Act four twelve. Jesus is it. It's very narrow, very straight, very clear. And so here in First Peter chapter two verse four through ten, notice in verse four, we. Responded to the, li- to the living stone, Jesus Christ, rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God, precious, namely Jesus. He was rejected by man. He said he was Messiah. He said he was the king of the Jews. The Jews rejected him. In verse 5, we become living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable God through Jesus Christ. He is that mediator. Verse 5. He came to bring us to the Father. In verse 6 through 8, notice we the church are part of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The chief cornerstone was rejected by the building of the Temple of Solomon, prophetic of Christ being rejected by the Jews and received by the church. And so all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Paul told the Galatians. When you get to verse 9 and 10 here of Peter, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we might, or that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mercy is less than we deserve. Grace is what we don't deserve. If you want to be judged by law, you get exactly what you deserve. God has given us grace and mercy; His mercies are new every morning. Notice the chosen generation as Israel; they were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, back in Exodus five, six, nineteen, five, and six. This people I have formed for myself; they shall declare my praise, referring to the church in Isaiah forty-three. 21. So you have a parallel between the Old Testament and the New. Then it says a royal priesthood as Israel's firstborn in Exodus 13. The firstborn was the priest of the home, as you know. Later on, the firstborn was redeemed by the Levites in Numbers 3. God numbered the firstborn, God numbered the Levites made the difference, and bought them, redeemed them with money. And so, the priesthood went from the firstborn to the tribe of Levi. Very clear. Then he says, a holy nation as Israel also, a people of the same nature. As Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 62.12, the people of God. Those who have repented of their sins, those who have believed God about what he said about their sinfulness and his provisions for salvation, and that he alone can forgive them and reconcile them back to God. We agree with God. God does not agree with us. Amos 2 2 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? It's a rhetorical question with one obvious answer. No, we agree with God. He does not agree with us. But then he says also special people, indicating ownership and his possession. A people to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So now we minister the gospel to those who are lost our friends, our loved ones, our husbands and wives, our children, our grandchildren, friends, whoever God opens the doors to. Because we know what it is to be lost, we know what it is to live in darkness. And sometimes people get offended that you live in darkness. Listen, I don't care what, how, how good you were, how bad you were. When you're lost, you're in darkness. You understand? Whether you want to say, well, I only had my big toe in the sewer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference, okay? If you're born into this world, even if you were more, the most moral and ethical person, if you die without repenting, you will be lost. You'll end up in hell. Because there's not one good, no, not one, not one righteous. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. The requirement to get into heaven is perfection or Jesus Christ. Which way you want? it? It's simple. Each believer can offer services to God as one of the royal priesthood now. There in Peter it says, the Catholic Church has no basis for their priesthood, which Israel had after the order of Aaron, God established that priesthood through Aaron. The priesthood of the New Testament for Jesus Christ, fulfillment of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. He was not of the tribe of, of Levi, but he was a tribe of Judah. After the order of Melchizedek, back where he met Abraham. The Mormons' Melchizedek priesthood is a falsehood. It's not legitimate. It spoke of Jesus in Hebrews seven twenty four, for the church. Now the believer's identity is as a personal representative of God, an ambassador. In Second Corinthians five twenty it says the following: Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you as Christ on Christ's behalf before be reconciled to God. The priest of the Old Testament represented the people to God when he entered the tabernacle. He would have the names of Israel over his heart, indicative of his concern and love for the people. And he would have their names upon his shoulders, six on each shoulder, indicative of bearing the burden of the people of God. The priest of the Old Testament also represented God To the people when he walked out of the temple or the tabernacle. He would have the word of God for the people. He would have the blessing of God for the people. And he would have the authority of God towards the people. But he was a go-between, a mediator. So no one could go straight to God in the Old Testament. They had to go through the priesthood of Aaron. The New Testament, we go through Jesus Christ. Everybody goes directly to the Lord who gets us to the Father. The priest alone had access to God, and he had to be right with God or he would die. The sacrifice were based on the confession of sin for forgiveness. The priest would enter in once a year to the Holy of Holies for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. And this was not without blood and many sacrifices. And for sins to be forgiven, the person would bring an animal, lay his hands on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring their sins. The person would take a knife and cut the animal's throat himself. And that animal would die right there. And he would see that that animal took his place, symbolic of the Lamb of God to come, Jesus Christ. All those animals were IOUs of the true payment to come the lamb of god which took away the sins of the world. And so the priest of the believer in the new testament is superior, all having access to god's throne, coming boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Hebrews 4:16 says, it's way superior than that of Aaron. The book of Hebrews makes that very very clear. The priest of the believer then is exactly where we fit in. Something that had been given to us by the grace of God. The priest of the Old Testament alone could minister to the people, but now we can minister to each other. The priest of the Old Testament alone could intercede, but now we can all intercede for one another. The sinners in the world. Now, we pray for one another, not because if I ask you to pray for me, it's not because you're superior to me. Or that I feel you're closer to God. But that we are members one of another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to have sympathy and compassion for one another. And so I'll pray for you. I'll pray with you. In agreement with what your need is. But not because I'm better than you. Or that you are better than I. Or that we're closer to God. But because we're in the same family. And so we pray for one another. The priest of the Old Testament was consecrated by God, as you know. In Exodus chapter 29, the priest was washed at the door of the tabernacle with water. We are washed by the Word of God. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, first of all, for our sins. But the Word of God is... A type of the word. Jesus said in John fifteen three, You are cleansed by the words I have spoken unto you. In Ephesians 5, 26, he says, He presents himself a bride without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing by the washing of the water of the word. You ever stay away from the word of God for a while and you're out there in the world a little, you come home and just get into the word. and It feels like you're cleansing mind and everything else from all the junk or everything else. The word of God. As you know, red is the hardest color to paint over. If you're going to paint over a red car, you've got to sand it. You've got to put about two different... uh, You've got to put a good primer on it and you're going to have to give it two, three, four coats because it bleeds through. And yet the blood of Jesus Christ only takes one coat and your sins are gone and you're whiter than snow. Wow. The priests wore special garments made for the priests. We have been clothed with the fine linen White and clean by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Revelation nineteen fourteen tells us. The priests offer sacrifice constantly. We rest in the Lamb of God, the once and for all sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ. Again, John one twenty nine, Hebrews seven twenty six to 28, 1 John 2, two. He is the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world, that which satisfied the wrath of God. The priest consecrated his right ear, as you know. His right thumb, his right toe, with the blood of the sacrifice. We have presented our body a living sacrifice to God. To hear, to do, and to walk in the ways of God through the sacrifice of his blood. The thumb to do the work of God. The ear to hear the voice of God. The toe to walk in the ways of God. Consecrated to God. We offer our entire body... Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beg you, I beseech you by the mercy of God you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned or transformed, but be transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. It's through the Word of God. So we study the Holy Spirit's working and transforming us from day to day. The priest would have communion with God through the sacrifice, as you know. We have ongoing communion with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ prefigured in the Passover and memorialized in the Lord's table. Exodus 12, you have there the lamb that was slain as they left Egypt that night. 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26 speaks of the Lord's Supper by, uh, by Paul. And in 1 John 2, 1, again, we deal with that fellowship we have. And we have access to Jesus Christ. Now, the privileges and benefits of an heir are not based on who they are or what they have done, but on the person who has bequeathed all to them. So, with our priesthood, it is in our identity with Jesus Christ. It is based on what Jesus has done for us. It has nothing to do with my goodness With what I deserve, or that I'm better than anybody else, it's just God's grace over every believer as He makes us a priest unto God. The priest of the believer, and so God died for the entire world. John three sixteen, very clear. Not for the select few or the chosen frozen. God does not send uh, send people to hell. They do so by rejecting the invitation to being saved. God always initiates again, and we respond. But we never are forced to be saved. No one is. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, second Peter three nine says. But God knows that not all will believe or accept him. The minute you are born again, you are a son and daughter of God by faith and part of the priesthood of the believers. Having the ability to be used by God as sons and daughters, Galatians three twenty six. Having received the Holy Spirit, now you're able to understand the things of God in First Corinthians 2.12. Having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, the upon experience of Acts one eight, tearing in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high, he told them. Having the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. We just have to put it on. We have it. We got to put it on. Having been enabled by the new divine nature, To escape the corruption of this world. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 4. You've got to reckon the old man dead. You've got to put on the new man. You cannot have both at the same time. The one will cancel the other out. If I yield to him. If I yield to the spirit of God. The old man will die. He won't live. If I yield to the old man. God won't force the new divine nature to work. It's a choice I make. And so the process of growth, development, and maturity will make us good witnesses as priesthood. Having his word to study and to be approved to God, Second 2 Timothy 2.15. We study that God, we be approved by God, not by men. Being able to give an answer to every man for the hope and the reason that lies in us with meekness and fear in 1 Peter 3.15. People have have questions. And we have the answers in the Bible. And so the priesthood of the believer is based on their identity with Christ. That's what it's based on, ladies and gentlemen. Second is the priesthood of the believer and that it's for service. The Lord Jesus is the primary example. Jesus in his service was and is uh, contrary to the world's view. One of a servant. Jesus said... For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who s- serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves? Luke twenty two twenty seven. He's God. He emptied himself of his glory. He took on human flesh and he came down to wash feet. Wow. And we think we can do certain things. <laughs> Amazing. We're not the lord over people. We're not to... Uh, to think that people need to serve us. We need to serve each other. Jesus in the service never viewed any task beneath him, even washing feet. The duty of the lowest of slaves in John thirteen one through 20, he washed every one of the disciples. Peter says, you wash my feet? You'll never wash my feet. He says, if I, have, if I can't wash your feet, you need to have part nor lot with me. Peter says, give me a bath, Lord. At that time, the common conversation that was taking place at the dinner table was this. Among the dirty dozen. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? That's what magnifies the insult to Jesus Christ more. And it's the night before he's going to be betrayed. Wow. The lesson was to serve one another even as Jesus served them. And by the way, Judas was there also. He heard this. Jesus in the service reveals he accomplished by emptying himself and not seeking a reputation. In Philippians 2, 5-8, we are told that he emptied himself of his glory, never his deity. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God because he was God. And he became obedient to the death of the cross. Therefore, a name has been given to him above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. What is it? Philippians 2, 5-11. Be a servant like Jesus dying to self, even if you have to lose your life. Wow. He's our example. Not the pastor, not other Christians, though we want them to be. Our example is Christ Jesus. The human example is very much a reality. Also, Paul wrote to the Philippians from a Roman prison that he appreciated their concern for him, but that he was there by divine appointment to further the gospel. This is found in Philippians 1, 12, 2, 13 through 18. We just started our in-depth study of Philippians. We'll be getting to that. They were concerned because Paul was in prison that maybe, you know... You know, he was, the gospel was through this and that. And he said, hey, listen, what are you concerned about? You know, some people, they're, they're kind of glad that I'm here. They're trying to add to my hurt and they're preaching Christ. Hopefully I get more persecuted. And others are becoming bold because they find me here. What do I care? For whatever reason, people are, as long as Christ is being preached, that's fine with me. And by the way, the Praetorium Guard says hi. And also, I'm here by appointment. God put me here. This is my next assignment. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So what Jesus did, we see humans have like been able to do. Stephen, being stoned. He says, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. Who was this example? Jesus on the cross. Jesus did it, so did Stephen. Wow, so much so I can't do that. He gives us an example of those who trust and depend on the Lord. Timothy was a man like-minded as Paul, we're told in Philippians 2, 19-20. Serving in the gospel despite his timidity and sickliness. He had no other one like, minded like Timothy, he says. It. And Paul had a lot of good guys. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, 25 through 30 didn't consider his own life. He came to serve Paul and to dispatch some gift that he had. And he almost died in the service of Jesus as he served Paul. And Paul commends him. So the priest of the believer is for service, not for sitting. Now they both start with the same letter, but they're diametrically opposed. The majority of the church believes that their gift is to sit. No, that's not. That's a sin. You're not to sit. You're to see what your gifts are, what your calling is, where God wants you, and you're to get up and step into the the ministry and and, and let God use you. Simple. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The scriptures are the only thing in preparation for service, nothing else. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished into every good work. All Scripture, Old and New Testament, are put side by side. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed, literally expired, inerrant, infallible. When someone tells you that there are errors in the Bible, ask them two questions. First, have you ever read the Bible? If they say no, then call them a hypocrite and be an arrogant. They're making a comment on something they've never read. Second, if they say, well, there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible, open your Bible, say, here it is, show me one. It won't be able to find it. And say, well, you know, you want to start in the book of Hezekiah? They'll be looking all day. There's no book of Hezekiah. They don't know that. (laughs) They're just repeating the lies of everybody else. They're always saying. The abundance of all the manuscript evidence we have and provided for us. The smallest variation that do exist are so minute. One letter or one word. That never affects the sense or the meaning of any one text. Of none. We don't have original text, but we have copies of copies. Do you realize we have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament? Now, if you lose a letter that you mail out and you made 20 copies and then the original is lost, and then you mail out those 20 to somebody else, and you want to recover the original, and you ask people, okay, the 20 that you send a copy to, do you have that copy? And they say, well, 15 of them have it still. So you get all the 15 copies back. And you did it on the Xerox machine. And on the Xerox machine, the L didn't go all the way up. And it looks almost like an E. And and the T could look like an L. and, and, And an I could look like an E. And it's not the dot. But because you know grammar and you know the English language, you can put it back together 100%. It wouldn't be hard comparing 15 copies, right? So much for all the errors. It's just not that difficult, ladies and gentlemen. All Scripture is profitable for five things. For doctrine, teaching about spiritual truth. For reproof, confrontation of error. We have a responsibility to hold each other accountable for the right truth. The scriptural truth with the right attitude. The motive is not for castigation, but for reconciliation and correction. Or correction, pointing a person in the right way. If you are a non-believer, then I evangelize you. If you're a Christian, you're all mine. You have no excuse. For instruction and in righteousness, right dealings with men. How to deal with men. Because sometimes I'll, I, I, I want to get you. And God says, you be just. You do it my way. For the purpose of being altogether equipped to do good. That which brings about healthy growth in teaching and service. For teaching without service produces only self righteous critics, murmuring because they turn inward. Always remember people that complain and murmur, they're the ones that are always sitting on the sidelines. You have this guy on the football team that, you know, took a knee, wouldn't stand for the national anthem, right? They ask them, Did you vote? Nope. Then shut up. Hypocrites. That was just healthy growth in teaching, in service. You know, if you eat too much without exercising, you get heart attacks. You come and all you do is you get filled with knowledge and this and that, but you're never giving out. Then you become a dead sea. Nothing lives in it. But if you're a Sea of Galilee, water goes in and water goes out. Because you give it out. Living waters. Jesus said he needed to go through Samaria. And as his disciples returned from purchasing some food, they say, Rabbi, eat. And he responded, I have food that you know not of. In John 4.32. Now, Jesus had just finished ministering to the woman of Samaria. He, he, was, he had just finished serving the worst of kind, a Samaritan woman. Had different number of husbands. The man she was living with was not her husband. And Jesus served her, ministered to her about the gospel. She got saved. They had no idea. I, I have food that you know not of. When you're busy for the Lord and you're being used of God, the priest of the believer, you get much more in return than you give out. It's important. Jesus is our model for service, not any man. But Jesus called them in Matthew 20 25 through 28 to himself and said, you know that the rulers and Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the example. The example of the believer's priesthood by Christians throughout history in their service is the standard. The biblical model. That's it. Not according to the medical model of Dr. Dobson of the integration of psychology undermining the authority of the Bible, the believer, and the pulpit of pastors. Psychology is not biblical. It's all subjective. It's all based on human intellect. It's contrary to God's truth. Not according to the model of of priests. Cardinals and popes of the Catholic Church that exalt themselves as the elite, as being close to God. Not according to the model of the seeker-friendly church, the church growth movement, or marketing, corporate principles of the church, but according to the principles of Scripture. The church is an organism, not an organization. Not according to the model of the emergent church that does not believe in the authority of scripture or the atoning work of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world, but only an example to follow. That's pretty heretical. Read the writings. Isaiah 6 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then he said, Here I am, send me. Simple. Are you saved? God wants to send you. God wants to use you. The word of God is the only thing that can that we can trust as absolute truth about God. Man, sin, death, hell, repentance, eternal life. Listen to Psalm 19, 7 through 14. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired a day than gold, yea, than fine, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward, who can understand his error, cleanse me from secret faults. keep back your servant from also from presumptuous sins. Let them not be, have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The Word of God. It warns you, it chastens you, it corrects you, it strengthens you, it guides you. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, knowing that the word is inerrant and infallible simply because the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were speaking as the Holy Spirit of God was carrying them so that they spoke inerrant and infallible. So the priest of the believer is for service. He enables us through his word and the Holy Spirit. But thirdly also, the priest of the believer is effective through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of revelation, are as follows: In First Corinthians twelve, eight, and ten, the word of knowledge deals with information of the past or the present, given by God to an individual, such as Peter, and the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. He told him, he thought he was going to get money. He says, "Silver and gold have I none; such as I have, give I thee." In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. God gave Peter a word of knowledge that man was going to be healed and God provided the faith and everything else the miracle took place. A word of wisdom deals with the handling of information in the present or the future. Whether to reveal it or simply pray such as Jesus when he told Peter to uh, acquire a coin from the fish's mouth to go pay the taxes. So a word of wisdom has to deal with the present towards the future. Word of knowledge has to deal with the past or the present. In a way that only God could know about it. There's also discerning of spirits. Dealing with being aware of evil spirits or demons. In the midst of people. Not a hunch. Not a guess. Feelings and suspicions about a person mean nothing. It's that God has gifted a person to be very aware when there's demon possession or demons present. It's the gift of discerning of spirits. People say, I have the gift of discernment. There's no such gift. Read it. Discerning of spirits have to do with demons. Then there's the gifts of power. In 1 Corinthians twelve nine and 10. Faith is the confident knowledge that God will work by his direction. Even as Peter for the lame man at the gate called beautiful. Stand up on your feet and walk. Because God told him. Now you go do it yourself. Not going to happen. But God gives you a word of knowledge to do it. Then you have to step out. Then there's healings. Plural. This is God's sovereign choice to supernaturally heal a person of whatever sickness, such as even Naaman, was healed, cleansed. Because if lepers never healed, they're said to be cleansed of leprosy. So God's sovereignty heals people at times. That's His choice. Faith is involved, yet God is sovereign. Miracles are the act of supernatural intervention to disrupt the natural laws of the universe as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's not natural. God disrupts the natural laws. Now, in all these miraculous things, God imparts the faith or God works sovereignly in spite of our lack of faith. And yet sometimes Jesus said, it's your faith that has made you whole. So it's indicative in that context that they believe. Other times it was God who just sovereignly healed the guy and it was nobody's faith. So the context will dictate that. There's also the gifts of inspiration in 1 Corinthians 12 10. Uh, prophecy deals primarily with God supernaturally communicating His word to men in order to speak God's word on behalf of men for edification, exhortation, and comfort through preaching and teaching. Secondarily, to reveal future things. So, part of teaching and preaching is prophecy. You're speaking forth the word of God. There's tongues in the plural. A supernatural ability to speak in an unknown language by God for the edification of the believer. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. First Corinthians twelve thirty, Paul says, Do all speak in tongues? No. Simple. So why is it that people say everybody should speak in tongues? They're unbiblical. Not everybody has that gift. Interpretation of tongues, the supernatural ability to interpret the language spoken so that the church can receive edification and exhortation and comfort, and it would act like prophecy. Okay, the, the interpretation, if, if tongues is speaking to God, the interpretation would have to be to God. When it goes to the congregation, that's prophecy. Prophecy goes to the people, interpretation goes up to God. Okay, same direction. Okay, you can't have a contradiction. Then there's the administrative gifts of Ephesians 4.11. Apostles are literally those sent out by God, divinely called and commissioned, for the mission field. That's a good example. Okay? Apostles today. Prophets are those men who God speaks forth His word through the supernatural vessel. Teachers, preachers are included in this. Evangelists are those men endowed supernaturally by the gift to proclaim the Word of God, the gospel, where sinners respond in salvation. Again, all of these gifts God is doing is not the individual. We get caught up with the vessel. It's God working through the instrument. We get caught up with the person and we start worshiping the person. Pastor teachers is one who is gifted, one who is supernaturally anointed to open up the word of God for understanding, for the people to grow, to mature, so that they know the word of God and they're not deceived. All of these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some of you went through the New Believers class. You went more in-depth than I'm doing right now. We're just giving an overview so you see exactly how it is that service is effective. There's other gifts. Exhortation, a supernatural ability to get a person to get on what they know they should do. Like the little kid on the diving board, right? He just needs some exhortation to jump off. Some of you just need a kick to get started. You're, You're sitting... Get up! Jump in. Otherwise, you become a critic and a murmur. It's easy to criticize. You sit in front of that TV in a boxing match. Oh, where that guy? Well, get in there. Show him. (laughs) Giving is the supernatural willingness to give of one's material finances and goods in a loving, discreet way so as not to make a person feel indebted. That's God's work. Now... People have come to me through the years asking that I pray for them for all kinds of the gifts. No one's ever asked me to pray for the gift of giving. No one. shows where we're at, right? Simple. Administration is a supernatural ability to oversee and govern the direction and business of the church, not through corporate or management principles, but as God directs us through so the word of God, anoints and calls people to do this. Mario, a great friend of mine. I love him, faithful, loyal to the Lord. He has this gift incredibly. he's does such an incredible job here in the church. Amazing, amazing, mercy. Is a supernatural dispensing of compassion to those who need it. Helps is a supernatural ability to aid others in their need in a way that they do not feel indebted. Notice these are all supernatural gifts. They're not talents, they're not abilities of human learning or ability. They're supernatural gifts endowed by God. The church without gifts for service is as ineffective as a mechanic without tools. Worthless. Sadly, too often the gifts of the Spirit are abused and misused in the church. The gifts of revelation, word of knowledge, wisdom, and discerning of Spirit are used to manipulate and control people to communicate to others that I'm more spiritual than you, so you're afraid to go around them you think they're going to read your mind. It's not what it is. As if they are always hearing from God. As if they are closer to God. As if they are more spiritual than others. Not at all. God's sovereignty operates that gift. Because you have it doesn't mean you'll operate it all the time. God has to operate it through you. The only gift you can turn on and off at will is tongues. Every other gift is operated sovereignly by God when he wants to. For if you could turn them on and off when you wanted to, if you have the gift of healings, you would go to Children's Hospital first. You don't. The gifts of power, faith, miracle, and healings are also abuse to impress and deceive people, falsifying healings and planting people in congregations, practicing things that are not biblical, slaying in the Spirit, dancing in the Spirit, being drunk in the Spirit, flying in the Spirit, Whatever. All this nonsense that goes on in Christian television, Channel 40. The only people I know that were slain in the spirit was Ananias the Fire. They never got up. No such gifts. The inspirational gifts of prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues are exercised in a disorderly manner. That's why Paul corrects it in Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Giving greater value to these. Than other gifts because they're flashy, they bring attention to you. The gifts of tongues is said to be a gift for uh, for some, not all. And yet, assemblies of God's foursquare and Pentecostal churches say that everybody should speak in tongues. How do you? How can you teach that when the Bible says no? Completely wrong. Let all things be done decently and in order, First Corinthians 14, 40 says. You judge it by the Scripture. You drop the plumb line. The gifts are supernatural, as I said. Supernatural gifts, not abilities or talents that you have, possess, or that you learn. The gifts are distributed severally as God wills. The gifts are for the edification of the body of Christ uh, and the necessity of the individual. And the gifts are for the glory of God not man. The gifts are for efficiency and effectiveness for the function and operation of the church body. All believers are endowed with spiritual gifts to serve the body. At least one gift you have. Everybody has at least one gift. Listen. First Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'm sure that you have more than one gift. But for sure you have at least one gift. What are you doing with it? I can tell you what that one gift is not. It's not the chair you're sitting on. You need to get up. You need to ask God and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What is my part at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena? Where do I fit? What are my gifts? Direct, guide me. And it's a lot easier to steer a moving object than the one that's sitting still. Some of you may not be old enough to remember when we didn't have power steering. But when you didn't have power steering, you were trying to parallel park in a real tight spot by the time you got into the spot you had some guns because you were working that baby it wasn't you know like the power steering that or even today's cars right you put them i always wonder you know now you get next to it and you put the little computer and it parallel parks itself now who's going to be responsible when that when that car crashes is it going to be the dealer is it going to be the manufacturer is it going to be by insurance or the car itself who is it i'm not driving We complicate things, don't we? The priesthood of the believer is effective through the gifts of the Spirit. And so, this is what the Bible teaches about the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer is based on their identity with Christ. Nothing else. The priesthood of the believer is for service, not sitting, And the priest or the believer is effective through the gifts of the Spirit, not talents or abilities. And so may God give us wisdom as he directs us. If God has brought you here to this church, then be committed to the Lord. You go to him, Lord, what would you have your servant to do? That's what Paul said on the road to Damascus. Then he got up and he went and did it. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word and your goodness towards us, Lord. And we pray you continue to direct and guide us. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here tonight to be born again, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, who died for your sins and the wrath of the Father was poured upon him, for you. And he made a real payment. And he died a real death. And he descended to hell. And preached to all those who died in faith. And he scooped them up and took them to heaven. And he said to the right hand of the Father. If you believe that. And that he's allowed you to see that you're a sinner. In need of grace for salvation. Then you can, can call upon him right now. A prayer of repentance is all that God requires. There's no certain formula or anything else. But right now. Right where you sit. This is your prayer repent. If you want to be born again, you can say this to the Lord. He'll save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.